This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by The Universe Within You, the new self-improvement book by none other than renowned psychologist David Kibner, Ph.D. Come see the doctor himself this Friday at the launch of The Universe Within You at Bookplace Incorporated on Clement Street in San Francisco and stay for a poetry reading by local artist Jack Belichick. The Universe Within You, the new self-improvement book by Dr. David Kibner. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And this week, it's a double feature. The late night. With 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers and 2007's The Invasion. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. Who was the director of the 1982 movie Creep Show? Names. Names. Was that George Romero? Yes, it was. All right. Cool. All right, Kelsey. How many film adaptations are there to Jack Finney's 1955 novel, The Body Snatchers? I'm talking actual adaptations, not just like, you know. Does the faculty count? No, that's what I'm saying. That's not an actual adaptation of The Body Snatchers. I'm saying taking the novel and adapting it, even if there are changes. I think there are four. There are four, yeah. Uh, The first one, which came out a year after the novel Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. This one that we're about to talk about, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. Then in 93, there was Body Snatchers. And then in 2007, The Invasion, which is also what we're watching this episode. That leads us right into the 1978 version. Not the first adaptation, but probably the most well-known. 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, directed by Philip Kaufman... Written by W.D. Richter, based on the novel by Jack Finney, and starring Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, Veronica Cartwright, Leonard Nimoy, and Art Hindle. It also has appearances by Kevin McCarthy, who was the original main character in 1956, uh, Dr. Miles J. Bennell, Sutherland's character in this movie. Art Hindle, I said his name, you might recognize his name. He is Chris from Black Christmas. He plays Jeffrey in this. <laughs> yeah, I kept I, the whole movie. I was like, I think I've seen that guy. Like, absolutely, I know him. He yeah. just doesn't have the crazy hair that he has. Yeah, but it's still kind of big. Yeah, but like, I feel like he's also more built, or maybe he just wears big coats. He wears a he wears a big <laughs> coat in <laughs> Black Christmas. Yes. And also, it's just he's more bravado in that yeah, movie. Uh-huh. So it just seems like a different And this, he's person. all calm. There's no emotion at all. So, like, yeah. The damn commies. <laughs> all right, Kelsey, what is Invasion of the Body Snatchers about? The commies. Oh, is it? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> it's about these wispy things that come from space and create pods that 
create duplicates of you, and then you're emotionless. It's weird, guys. It, like, sucks up everything that is you into itself, and then, like, you disappear, but you're still in, like, your consciousness is there. You just have, like, no emotions. It was not until I watched this that I realized I had never seen this whole movie before. Yeah. I've only ever seen very short parts of it because I was very surprised by a lot of this film. Yeah, I think the first version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers I ever watched was 2007's The Invasion. And I was not impressed when I first watched it. Neither was I, but I'm surprised. I didn't mind it nearly as much as I thought I was going to. The movie is free to watch if you have a subscription to either Prime, Hoopla, Criterion, Showtime, or DirecTV. You can rent it for $3 on Amazon or $4 on iTunes, Fandango, Vudu, Microsoft, Redbox, and AMC. It ranges from $10 to $15 to buy on all those services. Should people watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978? Yes. 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 Yeah, it's... Resounding yes. It genuinely lives up to... It's stature. Yes, it's very good. Highly recommended. I mean, that's all there is to say about it. We'll get into it when we talk about the film itself. You can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. From deep space. A space flower? Why not a space flower? The seed is planted. Why do we always expect metal ships? It smells lovely. Put it down, Jack. Terror grows. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Donald Sutherland. Brooke Adams. Leonard Nimoy. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Rated PG. Starts this week at a theater near you. All right, Kelsey. Get us started. How does Invasion of the Body Snatchers begin? So as I was saying, there are these wispy things (laughs) in space (laughs) that will come to Earth. Now, I... They're re- they're going to be described as like space flowers later and that is because they develop pods but like yes. in space they're just It's like a spore. They're just wispy. Yes. Well, in the new movie they turn them into spores, but in this it's this weird plasma thing. Yeah, so it's this Kaufman the director in his words described it as some viscous material he found at an art store. He paid like 12 bucks for a giant vat of the stuff. And I was right, it's underwater. When we were watching it I'm like They did a good job of this. It looks really incredible and unique, but I think it might be underwater. It is. (laughs) They they just threw this stuff into the water, let it sink down, and then ran that backwards. And since they had this, like, smokiness under the water, it looked like, you know, it was in open air, but on a weird planet, and that it was floating away. And it was a really cool effect. Every single effect in this movie is in camera. Which is very impressive. Yes, it is. Because there's some really cool shit they do in this movie. Yes. So it comes down to Earth, and it lands in San Francisco. And it travels through the water, and then that grows the plants, I guess. No, it lands on the plants, and it, and it forms flowers on these plants. Plants that didn't have them before. Right. I feel like if you genuinely wanted to sit down and, like, pick this movie apart scientifically, I feel like it would not stand up. Oh, I'm sure. 
Okay. But it doesn't I, matter. It's convincing were, enough, you know? Yeah, I agree. But, like, there were just times where I was like, that doesn't really make sense. And I can't understand. I can't wrap my mind around that. So, I don't know. Flowers are there. <laughs> well, it's probably what it's doing is it's mimicking the biology of the things on the planet. And so, it it hits plants, so it creates plants. And then it uses those plants to create people. Which is pretty interesting. I gotta say. We get a cameo here. Oh, the priest on the swing? It's Robert Duvall, who apparently is friends with the director, and he was filming another movie around the same time, and he did it for, like, a a jacket or something. He bought him a coat. So they put him in a priest garb and put him on a swing, just had him stare. Yeah, it was weird. Uh Uh-huh. It was like it had already happened, but it hadn't. No. Or maybe it had happened somewhere else or happened a little bit because this escalates very quickly. Not as quickly as the next movie we're going to watch, but still very quickly. Just a couple of days and all of a sudden it's everywhere. So this is when we get to meet... Brooke Adams playing Elizabeth. What do we know her from? Not much, actually. She's probably the least famous. We haven't covered The Dead Zone here Oh, is she in the dead zone? She's in the dead zone, yeah. Okay. I thought I had seen her before. So she is coming in with the mail and her husband. He's not her husband. He's her boyfriend. Her boyfriend, yeah, Art Hindle. And he is, he's watching TV with the headphones on and he's a ruckus loud guy and he does silly things. And she's like, look, I think I found a rare plant. And he's not listening to her, and he's t- she's trying to tell him, look, I'm, I'm looking up about this. I think it might be a dangerous weed. And according to this book, they should all be killed because they thrive on devastated ground. Uh-huh. She's wrong, but she's also right. She's right. Well, she's right in her conclusions, but she's wrong that it's this weed she thinks it is. Right. But everything else, basically, they are weeds. Uh-huh. They're a type of weed. Yep. And then we get this long ass scene with. Don't get me wrong, Donald Sutherland is on point in Holy this film. Holy shit, is he? He's, Jesus, he's really, he's really fantastic in this movie. He's incredibly believable. Yeah, like he's in, very natural. Even in this scene where he's at his most, like, I don't know, maybe bombastic, over the top. Yes. Sort of is in this very first scene where we see him. It's still like, oh man, you don't want to fuck with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, like I've never read the book, so maybe that is part of it. I don't know, but it just seemed really unnecessary. There's this whole long scene of him being part of the Department of Health, and he's investigating this French restaurant, and it's like it's a rat turd, it's a caper. If okay. it's a caper, then eat it. The night. We saw this movie. I was going to make dinner. Or we were we were going to make dinner, except for, like, the one meal that I wanted to make and actually sounded good that night had capers in it. And I legitimately was like, I don't know if I can eat this. <laughs> what is that? A caper. No. Do you presume to tell us what is in this stock? It's a rat turd. A what? A rat turd. A caper. A rat turd. A caper. If it's a caper, eat it. He comes outside and his window has been cracked because they've thrown a bottle at it. A bottle of wine and it was a cheap bottle of wine. It wasn't even a good bottle of wine. So it's just like, 
But he's unfazed. But I don't know. It just seems unnecessary. This movie is it's a little the most too long. Unnatural. It is a little too long. I will give you that. It is patient like I like, but like it keeps going. Mm-hmm. Every time you think this has to be the climax, it's not. <laughs> Even especially the ending is probably when it's at its most patient, which is remarkable. Yes. But so cut back to the happy couple where she has left the flower in a jar sitting next to her sleeping boyfriend. Uh-huh. And the next thing she knows. She wakes up. And he's already awake and dressed, and he's picking up glass on the floor, the jar that that flower was in. Yes. And he completely ignores her as she's talking to him. He takes out the garbage. There's this garbage truck that you're going to see a whole lot in this movie. And they never point it out. It just is there, and after a while, you're like, oh, okay. Because the first time you see it is here, and he tosses it into the garbage truck. It's, like, weird that he had to take it out to the garbage truck, but whatever. And there's all this lint, what looks like lint in the garbage truck. The next time you'll really see it and recognize that lint, it's outside a dry cleaner. So you're like, you'd think nothing of it. <laughs> but you will continue to see this throughout the movie and realize that this has heavy implications. And they never point it out. Anyway. Yes, there's a lot of things that are done in this film that are not pointed out, and it's genius. Yeah. I love subtlety, and even I, like, I know that there's a lot of stuff I didn't pick up on, and I like that Uh about it. You know, the next time you watch it, you're going to be able to catch something new. Exactly. So she immediately tells her boss, Donald Sutherland, that her husband is acting strangely. I mean, is he her boss? They work together. Yeah, but she's a lab tech. Her boss, I think, is the other guy. He's not, he doesn't work in the lab. He's an investigator. So I think they work in the same department, and he needs her to come into work early to run a test for him. But I don't think he's her boss. But anyway, it's important because they have kind of a flirtation going on, and you find out that they're not in a relationship. They're just really close friends. Yes, and it's okay because her boyfriend is taken over by aliens immediately. So, yes. like, you don't you don't get attached to him as a character. But it's a little. She's very clearly. I mean, look, they're not in a. It's one of those things <laughs> where she is perfectly happy with her boyfriend and not thinking about leaving him in any way, and probably not even considering. Donald Sutherland is an option, and he definitely wants to get with her, but he's not like butthurt about it. You know what I mean? Like, he's just like, eh, I tried, you know, like that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's they have a really fun relationship that if it wasn't for the fact that she had a boyfriend, you would think they were in like an intimate relationship. Yes. And they will be by the end of the film. Sort of. (laughs) He gets to see her naked. But so she's trying to tell him and he's not really listening. And as they're walking through the health department. Yeah. There's this dude just standing in the window staring at them. The, those things are great. Yes. You just get them in the background, and again, they don't point them out. Nope. You just see it, just mm-hmm. for a moment. And there's a few that you're like, oh, I saw that. That was a little obvious. But if you're paying attention to the background the whole time, it's been happening a couple times up to this point. Mm-hmm. But that night, when she goes home to see her boyfriend, as soon as she touches him, she just knows not him. Yeah. And so she says the next day, 
Jeffrey's not Jeffrey. Uh-huh. The famous lines, my husband's not my husband. Uh-huh. Jeffrey is not Jeffrey. Oh, man, that they just drive right into the ground in an invasion. <laughs> Jesus. And she's saying, you know, he has no emotion. He has no feelings. He's not the same person because he he doesn't even care that he's going to miss, like, a baseball game. He's got to go to a meeting, and those meetings are super creepy. Oh, yeah, he gave away his playoff tickets. The tickets that he was really excited for the night before, why he wasn't paying attention to her, is because he was excited about this series. And all of a sudden, I have to go into work for a meeting. What about the game? I gave away the tickets to a coworker. You did what? Like, yeah, it's just not him. So when I say the commies, I'm not going to get into it, like, for forever. Like, there's too much stuff to get into here. But the book was, was written in 1955. Yes, it was the Red Scare. And it's definitely about the idea of becoming emotionless, because that's what everyone thinks will happen if you're a communist. Yeah, and, I mean, not to keep harping on the invasion, but the invasion kind of leans into that a little bit more heavily. It's a little bit more overtly political. A little bit. And about, hey, you know what, can you imagine putting the greater good over the interests of yourself? Gasp. I can't even imagine it. That would be like if I was a pod person. You know what I mean? Like that's its kind of political point of view. This doesn't really have that. Well, I was going to say it feels a little bit very political when he goes off to these meetings because it's like it's like when it's supposed to be telling you be afraid of when your loved ones suddenly become involved in new groups. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That you don't understand and they I don't – I think the original story takes place in like a small farm town or something like that. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've never read it. But I believe that's the case. And this one is in San Francisco because they were like, hey, what if, like, could it take place in a big city? What if it was a my city, you know? And that's why it's in San Francisco. And so it does have this sort of like social movement feel to it mm-hmm. that I don't know if the original would have. But again, I haven't seen it. But so then they go to have dinner together, and doesn't that feel a little bit, like... Date-y? Yeah. No, I just get the feeling like they have meals together a lot. Again, I think he wouldn't have any problem if she decided she wanted to start a relationship. <laughs> but, you know. But so she keeps asking him things, and he keeps kind of... He's not being a dick about it, but he, you know, he doesn't believe her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you think I'm nuts. And he's like, do the thing with your eyes. And so she does this funny thing that she can do with her eyes. And he says, as long as you can do that, you're human. And you think that's going to come into play? It It doesn't. doesn't. It was apparently not in the script. It's something that she could just do with her eyes and they decided to put it in the movie. But you think they'd bring that up? Yeah. Nope. They're starting to notice that things are changing around them in everyday life It happens for Donald Sutherland in a very strange way through his dry cleaners, which, again, I understand that they're developing the fact that, I mean, obviously you've got to have ways of figuring it out. So there's got to be interactions. But again, it slows the movie down. And it really, the the audience is like, wait, who the fuck is this? Why are you talking to Donald Sutherland? And you have to kind of figure out that, oh, this is the... The dry cleaner that he goes to apparently enough times that this guy understands that he's a doctor Mm -hmm. and wants to talk to him about his problems with his wife. 
It's like, this isn't my wife. Yes. The the man who owns the dry cleaner talks about his wife, who also owns the dry cleaner, who kind of runs the place. That's not my wife. And then eventually she just like looks at him like she knows this conversation is happening. Yep. And you get this feeling that like, oh, I don't know if this is good. Yeah. And Donald Sutherland's like, huh, that's interesting. I've heard this before. He doesn't – like, things don't start ticking for him yet. He's like, this is the same thing that Elizabeth said. Mm-hmm. But he still tells her, I got this buddy. He's a famous psychiatrist. We're going to see him. And you just tell him what you're telling me and he'll he'll explain it all for you. Don't worry, you know. Because everybody believes in Dr. Spock. Yes. Uh-huh. The rational one. Mm-hmm. Ironically, another movie where he has to play someone with no emotions. But so when Donald Sutherland is again approached by Elizabeth, he's like, what's the matter with you? Talk to me. And she's like, you don't understand. There's a conspiracy going on. There are secrets being passed between them that we can't even understand. They just look at each other and they know. I followed my boyfriend all day long and he met with all these strange people. Yeah. All day long. Because at first it looks like, oh my God, is he going to have lunch with one of the nurses at his hospital or whatever? Uh, no, because then he just walks up to the, some random businessman and they like exchange things. And then there's this random worker guy that's talking to them. And then they meet in a mall somewhere and it's she's baffled, but it's not him. Something's going on. Yes. And this is when he says, you need to talk to my friend who's a psychiatrist. And she's like, I don't need a psychiatrist. But nobody ever listens to her because she's a woman. Uh (laughs) It's really well done. There's all these people staring out the window and it's just enough that it's weird. Uh Uh-huh. It's unsettling. Yes. Even though they're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. They're not a direct threat. It's like there's something wrong. And she says, it's like the city changed overnight, and then their conversation is interrupted by a man who jumps on their car, shouting that they're coming, you're next, you're in danger, they're already here. Did I ever tell you the one about the English camel car? Did I? <clears throat> they're trapped in the desert, in the Sahara Desert. They've been surrounded by Rommel for 40 days, and they've run out of food. And, uh, the captain comes and makes an announcement to the men. And he says, Men, I have some good news for you and some bad news for you. And one of the men says, Oh, wait, you have told me this one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell it to you again? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Lock the door. Lock the door. They're coming. They're coming. Help. Help. They're coming. They're coming. It is effective. This is Kevin McCarthy, who is the Benel of the original. Yes. From 56, yeah. Yes. And I'm just going to say this right now. The invasion, which again, was not nearly as bad as I remembered it being. I like that the invasion has this happen to Nicole Kidman. I just wish that it hadn't happened to Nicole Kidman before it happened 
with her. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like she had already been experiencing stuff before that happened? So this same scene will happen in the invasion. Yeah. A woman will jump on their car and say the same things. Yeah. But then later, Nicole Kidman will be the one who's shouting oh, yeah, yeah. at people's yeah. cars. Uh-huh. And I enjoyed that we got to see it from that angle, why yeah. you might be put in that position. But I wish we hadn't already seen it in that version with the other lady. I see. I wish we had just experienced it with Nicole Kidman. Well, because I think what you're saying is if it had been flipped around – Again, we're talking about the invasion. If it had been flipped around and it happened to Nicole Kidman first, we might know might we might have more empathy for this woman, this stranger who comes pounding on the window or whatever. We might understand a little bit more of what she's going through, a little bit more of the context, because instead they expect you to feel that in reverse. Like, oh, yeah, remember that moment that happened a long time ago? And you're like, what the heck is going on with this lady? Now you're seeing what the heck was going on with that lady. But it has, you have to cast your mind backwards to some random character. Like, is that, are you saying that's the problem? I I see that that is a problem, but that's not the problem I had with it. Yeah, I don't find another solution, though. I just wanted to see it from... I love the idea of getting to understand why that man was uh -huh. put in that position. I enjoyed seeing that from Nicole Kidman's mm -hmm. perspective, but I didn't like that it had already happened to her because it felt like, wait, now you're just going to do the same thing oh, that you I already see what you're saw saying. Yeah, else you already do? know nobody else is going to respond to that. Yeah. You already know. Yeah. Uh -huh. I see. I see. Yeah. And we do get something earlier on in the movie. We saw somebody just run across the street looking behind them. Yes. And we didn't know what was going on. They were just running away from something. Yes. And nobody was really reacting. They were just like, what the heck? Maybe that's the most reaction you got out of anybody. Yes. But the fact that something is happening to you that you feel so fearful that you're running in terror from and yet the world continues on as if this isn't happening to you. Like terrifying. Is, is terrifying. Yeah. Except there is a direct consequence that we see in this version with Kevin McCarthy's running man, he ends up running off and then getting chased by a crowd of people. Almost like they're just like, hey, what's going on? Or almost like they're running after, you know, Fred Krueger <laughs> trying to run him into the whatever to set his place on fire or whatever. You know, they're just kind of like chasing after him. Not homicidal, really. It's just they're legging it towards him. And then he goes by this corner. We hear a crash. And as they drive up and they drive past this big scene where everyone's just kind of standing around, they see Kevin McCarthy on the ground, bloody and dead. Like, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. Yeah. It's very creepy and scary. Where are they on their way to, Kelsey? <laughs> they are on their way to meet Kibner. And the first introduction we have to this name of Kibner is through Jeff Goldblum saying that Kibner's ideas are garbage. Yes, that is uh, Jack Belichick. Uh, that's the character played by Jeff Goldblum, who is a poet who goes to this book reading, who knows Kibner and who knows uh, Sutherland, Bunnell, but hates Kibner. He thinks he's a total hack. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments he says is that what Kibner is trying to do is to explain the world to people so they change for the world. 
what Belichick wants to do is change the world to adapt to people. Officer, I work for the county. This is a public spirited just No, I will give you my name September if you will give me your to name. People to fit because the world. I want to be I'm able to report this. I'm trying to change this. the world to fit people. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk about it in a second. And I thought that was an interesting sort of contrast of their perspectives. Hmm. Like the people shouldn't have to change for the world. The world should change for people. It's kind of optimistic. You know what I mean? Like it's like I don't know. I guess this isn't, I don't think, what it's the metaphor for. I might just cut this out. But, like, for instance, if somebody is gay, they shouldn't have to keep that inside themselves to suit the rest of the world. They should just be who they are, and the real world should fucking deal with it. You know what I mean? That's Belichick's perspective. Okay. That makes more sense. Because I was like, obviously I'm not supposed to agree with Nimoy. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Belichick won't shut up. While Sutherland and Brooke Adams, Elizabeth, are trying to make a phone call to call the police to report what they saw as witnesses. Yes. But the police don't seem to be interested. Nope. I've never heard anything like it. They don't want to take a witness. They don't want to <laughs> hear anything I have to say. Meanwhile, Elizabeth is looking for Leonard Nimoy and she hears this woman shouting, my husband's not my husband. You don't understand. She's like... He's exactly the same, but he's not the same. Uh-huh. And no one is listening to her. And Elizabeth will say that no one is listening to her because Nimoy is being a total asshole. Yeah. And like, I mean, they don't make it so obvious, but they make it pretty fucking obvious. Well, it's not entirely clear that he's changed yet. Spoiler alert, Nimoy is a pod person. They don't make it clear yet. We don't know if he's changed here. We do know he's heard this from other people. He's curious about it, but it's obviously nonsense. There's some sort of psychosis going around like it was a disease or something like that. He doesn't hit the nail on the head. He recognizes there is a nail to hit, but he hits the wrong place. He hits exactly where the nail isn't. There is a disease going around, but it's with the spouses, not the people who he thinks are going through some sort of psychosis. And... When Elizabeth tries to chime in, is like, I, I thought the same thing about my husband. That's exactly why I wanted to talk to you. And he's like, you need to get the fuck out of this. I'm trying to calm one of my patients down. And so he does this thing that's impressive to all the audience members because they're there for a reading of his. Because he has another new book out. He like grabs her and calms her down, makes her hold her husband's hand and calm down and everything's going to be okay. And he basically deescalates the situation and everyone's like, Oh my God, isn't he impressive? Yes. And she, Elizabeth will get the woman aside and will say here, here's my number. Call me. Yeah. I work for the health department. Call me. Yes. She says, everything is a conspiracy. <laughs> She's upset because again, just no one is listening. And Nimoy keeps trying to rationalize and give her all these ideas about why her boyfriend might be acting different. She's just like, that is not what's going on. If you want to know why, in a situation similar to this, Kelsey would be mad at me, it's because Nimoy represents me. The rationalizer. The person that's like, there's got to be a rational explanation for this. <laughs> just... Check yourself. It's not some alien fucking invasion. There's got to be a better explanation for this. I would be That's me, so mad and at she would, you. And she would be furious. I would be so <laughs> mad at you. If I came home and told you 
someone's not someone and you didn't listen to me, I would be like, I, you deserve what you get. Partially, like part of me is like, like, what do you want to do? <laughs> what am I going to do about it? Hit Fight him in the them? face with a rake? <laughs> yes. Okay. But so Nimoy tells Matthew to take her home. Make sure you don't hook up with her or anything. Just take her home. Which makes me believe that he's already changed. Because but he it, knows that her boyfriend has changed. And he wants him to be Fair enough. But he also, like, has an emotional outburst and gets a little bit excited when he grabs Belichick and slams, ag- slams him against the wall. And is like, I told you a thousand times, butt out or whatever. And then he turns to Elizabeth and is like, now, how did that make you feel? You know what I mean? Like, it's not, I know the outburst wasn't genuine, but his excitement on trying to prove something to Elizabeth makes me think that he hasn't changed yet. You see, that's the point. I'm listening to you, but he doesn't think I am. Why? Because he doesn't expect me to bother enough or to care. Belichick, I'm telling you for the last time, I want you to stop. Stop. I want you to stand still, be quiet, and shut up. Jack, how did you feel about what I just did? Why? Why the stories and that? How did you feel? (sighs) You were probably shocked. You wanted to shut your feelings off, withdraw, maybe make believe that it wasn't happening because then you don't have to deal with it. Well, I think they're not totally clear on this whole no emotion thing because if they had no emotions, they wouldn't get mad. And they don't get mad mad, but they certainly yell and attack. Yes. And they run. That's more like an alert. But I don't think those are those are emotions. That's like an alarm going off when they scream. Like I said, they run, they attack. Yeah, running isn't an emotion. It's how you move quickly. And I've always felt that when they get to the part where they say, and I know more from the faculty, but when they get to the part where they're basically like, fine. You're right. We win. We'll take you on. We'll kill you. Like, that to me is emotion. That's them saying, fuck you. We win. Mm -hmm. So. Everything's a tactic. Yeah. So I've never really bought into the idea that they're emotionless. I mean. But again, they're representing the commies, so they've got to be evil. (laughs) Like, again, I don't think it's so much communism in this movie. (laughs) I think it's definitely that. Like, I mean. What do our main characters, the ones that we're passionate about and the ones that we like, like, what are they? They work for a social services division of the government. Like, come on. That's the socialist programs that we're afraid of in communism. They're, they run a fucking bathhouse and they read poetry. Like, these are our heroes. This movie is not about communism. The original is about communism. <laughs> and this just is escape, based on that. You can't escape the Well, yeah, communists. I think it I think it's 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 representative of that fear, but I don't think this movie is trying to say commie's bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? What I mean is that's why I think they have that hint of evil. Okay. Because they were originally meant to represent the right. commies. Plus Watch anything where somebody's supposed to not have any emotions. They always get it wrong. Anytime you try to take away a human element from something that's posing as human or that has to communicate in any way, like every time they, they'll they use a contraction or they'll do something where it's like, oh, that's that's human right there. You know what I mean? That's why they had to make Spock only a half Vulcan. Because the other half is his passionate human side. (laughs) 
But even when they bring Sarek, his father in, what's a hundred percent Vulcan, even he has emotions. It gets to the point where he gets so old that senility in Vulcans is where they just feel emotions freely and more powerfully than any human. Like they just kind of give up at that point, trying to make Vulcans dispassionate and they write it into their storyline, you know, that they're, Oh, there's passion bubbling under the surface because it's almost impossible to write someone as dispassionate. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But you're right. He does take Belichick and throw him up against the wall because later that makes Belichick cry. <laughs> what? You didn't notice that? Jeff well, Goldblum's crying. His nose is bleeding. No, before that, before any of that stuff happens... He goes to his bathhouse after he's talking to Donald Sutherland. And Donald Sutherland, he's like, hey, why did he yell at me? What the fuck? I didn't do anything wrong. And Donald Sutherland says something like, just shut up or something. And that makes him cry. Yeah, but that's when his nosebleed starts. Is it? Yeah. I don't know. Then we have to watch some dude get a massage. whines about the music. And I'm just like, again, is any of this necessary? (laughs) It's building this atmosphere of what's going on in this bathhouse. But again, the movie is long. Yes, it is. Belichick's wife, Nancy, is Veronica Cartwright, who we know from Alien. She's the, oh, God. Oh, God. Yes. Uh, She's also in Candyman 2. She's the mother when we just watched Candyman 2. Yes. She's one of the only good accents in that entire movie, interestingly. (laughs) She does great in this movie. She's really good. She's really good. I like her a lot. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised. I I really liked her. Because yeah. don't, you don't like her in Alien, you know? She's kind of annoying. Yeah. She breaks down all the time. And <laughs> you're like, you know, you, you really like Ripley, who's like tough and does the right thing and makes the right decision. And But then you have Veronica Cartwright over here, who's just like losing her goddamn mind. <laughs> But so then she sees, as she's closing up, she sees that one of her customers is still there. And she's like, okay, you gotta go. Thanks for the plant. Yeah. Everybody's giving plants these days as Uh gifts. Jeffrey gave Elizabeth a plant. Yep. And the next scene is when we see Goldblum's nose bleeding. I thought. No, he has tissue in his nose. And it's red. Well... It's nasty, and uh, we get a really gross scene. This guy, it looks, it's, I mean, it's, you said it's in camera. It looks really realistic of this guy being covered in this shit. Yeah, she finds who, Nancy finds who she thinks is Belichick, her husband, and pulls off the sheet that he's lying under, and yeah, it's this thing that's shaped like her husband, but is covered in all this fibrous fur and is like almost featureless. Yes, it's it's gross and weird looking. So she starts screaming and finds her husband who's asleep. Uh-huh. Yes. Can't sleep. Nope. But so she wakes up her husband. So that ends the process. So we'll find out later that the process takes time, even though sometimes it seems to go a lot faster. Yes. Than other times. Yes. Again, that's annoying. But whatever. It, you know, it works for the movie when it works. It's interesting that the invasion does, I think, a better job of trying to couch it in some sort of pseudoscience as to why you need to be asleep. It tries to explain scientifically why that is. Yes. But then it almost over explains things 
and gets to the point where like their solution to how to solve this problem is like, oh, th- this is just completely unbelievable. <laughs> they needed a reason to pick him up. Yes. Anyway, we're not talking about that movie. But so then they call up Donald Sutherland because they're like, oh, you need to get over here because some weird shit is happening. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what the hell? The wife, Mrs. Belichick, is like, you shouldn't be touching it. It's a monster. But they're investigating and they're like, there's no fingerprints. Almost like a fetus. Yeah. So there's this really great exchange with Donald Sutherland and Veronica Cartwright and Jeff Goldblum looking at this body. Jeff Goldblum says no fingerprints. And Donald Sutherland is like, no fingerprints. Like a fetus. You just said it was an adult. (laughs) Just his delivery is so good. Sutherland's like, I said it was an adult because it was tall. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Donald Sutherland plays this part so well. Now, okay, I know we have been recommended to watch Don't Look Now. It's not really our thing. I tried to, we tried to watch it a while ago. I don't remember that at all. A long time ago, and we were bored, and we turned it off. I don't remember that, but I don't remember a lot of things. And besides which, the ending got ruined for us a billion times. Oh, yeah. uh A billion times over, so fuck it. But I can't even think of other movies I even know him from, but he's just outstanding in this movie. Is it bad that the first movie I thought of wasn't The Hunger Games? The Hunger Games, right. Where he plays President Snow. And he does a pretty good job. Yeah, he does. But the first movie I think about is Space Cowboys. I've never seen that. We owned that on DVD. We bought a lot of movies around this time on DVD. Uh, My family did. Uh, But... Space Cowboys with Clint Eastwood and Tommy Lee Jones and James Garner and James Cromwell. And like it's the cast is incredible, but it's about these old astronauts that have to go back into space. And Donald Sutherland is oh, with them. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing about that. But he he's phenomenal in this movie. Like just his performance alone totally sells it. But not to mention Elizabeth's performance is outstanding as well. Yeah. He's also he's also the original Hawkeye from Mash. Oh, in, in the movie, I thought you meant from like the Avengers. No, <laughs> no. I was like, that's a whole other side of Donald Sutherland <laughs> in the movie, which came out before Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He was Hawkeye, the I guess main character. I guess you would say. I've never seen Mash. Even the TV show? I mean, like, I've seen an episode here and there, but I don't Jesus. know anything about it. I'm surprised your dad didn't subject you to MASH. Nope, wasn't into it at I all. I would have figured he would have totally been into that. Maybe he was a little bit too hippie. I don't know. It was a little hippie for being about war. For being about Vietnam? No, it's about Korea. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's from it's from the Korean War. I think that's one of the things they say is that the, the TV show lasted for, like, at least 10 seasons or something like that. Which is longer than the entirety of the Korean War. The show was that long, so, but anyway. But so immediately Donald Sutherland wants to call Elizabeth, to which Jeff Goldblum is like, why? Why are you calling Elizabeth? What's wrong? And it's because he's realizing, uh-oh, Elizabeth could be in trouble. Yeah, she because, was right. This is her her boyfriend. This is what happened to him. Yeah, and Mrs. Belichick 
she's the one that puts it together like the fastest. She's the Mm -hmm. one that's like, okay, don't touch it. This is obviously something that spreads. It's something that happens while you're asleep. But so Mrs. Belichick is looking at it. And while she's looking at it, the eyes go open. And so she's like, oh, my God, the eyes opened up. This is when he falls asleep again. Yes, when Jeff Goldblum falls asleep. And that's when she puts it together that it happens while you're sleeping. Then, once she wakes Jeff Goldblum back up, the the body starts to get a nosebleed as well. Uh-huh. And it actually wakes up and tries to grab him, which, again, doesn't really work with what no, they no, tell no. us later. It doesn't. The tendrils do. Oh, yes. The wispy, what do you call it, uh, lint-looking tendrils reach out and touch him. Yes, and it's very creepy. Yeah. But so Donald Sutherland goes to Elizabeth's house because he can't get a hold of her because she tries to answer the phone, but she's been drugged. Mm -hmm. And so her boyfriend just hangs up the phone. And when Donald Sutherland gets there, I don't know if you noticed, but he's sitting there watching like a weather channel. (laughs) No, I didn't notice that. Yeah, so that was pretty funny. Then we get to see that Elizabeth is being recreated, just like Jeff Goldblum was being recreated. And in comes Sutherland to rescue her, and it's this very tense scene. Where he has to break, yeah, he, he's he's there, but uh, Art Hindle can't find him there. Yeah, it's very tense, and he needs to break out with Elizabeth. Yes, and he does, he's successful, and of course, he immediately returns with the cops uh-huh. right when the, the garbage truck f- drives away. Yeah, uh-huh. And out there was her boyfriend throwing away some lint. Uh-huh. Sutherland's like, there was a duplicate body. I saw it. I saw it. And they're like, that's just a bunch of pots that looks like a body. It's like, come on, like, Sutherland. Do you really think he wouldn't clean up after himself? Exactly. You left him there alone. Like, come on. But luckily, Leonard Nimoy is there with them because Sutherland had Cartwright call Nimoy over to investigate this body, when Nimoy gets there, there's no body. When they go to this house, when he shows up at this house, there again, there's no body. And he tries to defuse things because he's famous. The cop lets him sort of defuse things. Yes, and I don't understand that part because I thought they had already infiltrated the police. The cop was changed because you see him look at the boyfriend. Right, so Art why Hindle. wouldn't they want to take them in? Wouldn't it be easier to get them in jail? I imagine that they would fight back against... I I don't think they want confrontation. Like, officially, they want peace. But yeah, so Nimoy is again being a dick, and Elizabeth totally calls him out. Why are you trying to convince us that we're seeing things? But then to Sutherland, he says, I've known you too long, I totally believe you. Which right after that is the big reveal that Nimoy is in on it. Yeah. And they're all discussing the various theories that they have about what's going on. And I love, again, Belichick. She's just like, why can't they be space flowers? Fuck you guys. Because they're just like, it's not space flowers. Uh And she's like, why not? And she's like, they're parasites. They're living off of us. The next day, Elizabeth will go into work and try to get um, this flower to be tested. But you don't know who you can trust. Like, a lot of people have already been infiltrated. There's a lot of question of why are you so emotional? And that's when she'll see 
the woman who was talking to Leonard Nimoy, who was saying, my husband's not my husband. And I don't know why she's there, but she sees her and she's like, oh my God, are you okay? And she's like, oh, I'm perfectly fine. Everything's fine now. I'll see you soon, I hope. Uh huh. Did your husband ask you to come here? No, no. I want everybody to see that I'm back to myself again. No, wait, please. I'll see you soon, I hope. But they still don't know about Letter Nimoy, so they keep trusting him for some reason. Yeah. And that night, Jeff Goldblum is like, I can't find anybody on the radio. What's going on? Uh huh. Nimoy is giving pills to Elizabeth, which goes nowhere, but it's part of it. And that night, when they're sleeping, what happens? Well, Sutherland sees it. Nope. No, he doesn't see it. Sutherland is kind of exposed to it first. He goes outside to sleep on a chair in his garden outside, and he falls asleep, and it's Cartwright, right? Yeah, yeah. Cartwright sees it and screams and wakes him up. She sees all these pods that are starting to open up with these bodies inside of them. She's a badass in this movie. For each of them. There's one for all of them. Yeah, and I I wrote down, good lord, this scene is nasty. Jesus. It is body horror central. They realize that they're coming to get them there. They know they're there. And so they're escaping. Sutherland kind of stays behind and he grabs this rake, this like, you know, one of those solid rakes, not the flimsy bendy kind of rakes. He finds the one that looks like himself and it so repulses him that he smashes its face in. And since it's like a plant, it just crushes and it is it's incredibly effective. Again, an in-camera effect that's really, really good. We also get this moment where he sees the one that looks like Elizabeth and he can't bring himself to destroy that one. Yes. But if it gets separated from them, it's okay. They'll destroy themselves. Yes. Just like what happened with Belichick's double earlier in the film. Yes. But I love when Cartwright wakes him up. She's just like, Matthew, they're growing. Wake up, wake (laughs) up. And he tells her to wake the others And he gets on the phone to call the police because he still hasn't wrapped his mind around the fact that the police have been infiltrated. Yeah. And Goldblum keeps saying to him, get off, hang up, Matthew, hang up, Matthew. Then on the phone, much like in Oculus, they say, thank you, Dr. DeBanel. We'll be there in just a moment. And he's like, how did you know my name? I didn't didn't give give you my my name. name. Yeah. And that's when especially Belichick is like, hang the fuck up. Hello, police. Officer, I would like to report four bodies in my backyard. You all right? Wait right there, Mr. Bennell. How do you know my name? Hang up, Matthew. I didn't tell you my name. Hang up. I didn't tell him my name. They're all a part of it. They're all parts, all of them. Who are you calling? Washington. What, the CIA, the FBI, they're all no, pods no, already? No, I've got a friend in the Justice Department. I know his home number. I can dial direct and I can avoid the San Francisco What are you going to tell him? Oh, my God. They grow out of those pods. What number are you calling from, please? Operator, I was dialing direct. I'll try the number for you, Mr. Bunnell. Coming up here. Hang up, Matthew. Because earlier on in the movie, 
when he's trying to call in that witness report and he's like, my name is Dr. Bunnell. I work for the health department. Belichick is shouting kind of over it. Like, why would you give them your name? Why would you ever give the police your name? Well, and they all eat it up. I am talking to the police. No, he was lying bleeding on the road. What well, seems to be the trouble, officer? Just, hello. Don't yeah. ever give your name to cops. What do you want to do? Get on the master list? Leavenworth and Turk. I'll know, hold. It... You know, and so now it's like, ah, they know your name. Hang the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's when Elizabeth will say they're all in on it. Come yeah. on, get it together, figure it out, man. Pick it, get it, you know, keep up. Yeah. And they realize that they've cut their power, they're barricading the street, and they are no longer in hiding. It is mm-hmm. now out in the open. Goldblum's like, do you have a gun? And and Sutherland's like, nope, I do not have a gun. <laughs> but let's go out the back door. And that's when he'll destroy the duplicate's face. Uh-huh. They keep running, and, and Sutherland has this really... It's a, it's a really effective scene. They're just running kind of quietly through the streets. Yeah. And it's eerie. And so they, Sutherland will say, keep running, don't stop, don't stop. The cinematographer, Michael Chapman, and the director... Philip Kaufman, they had this idea of sort of evoking the noirish elements of the original from 56 and just film noir in general. That's why you get that one shot where they're running through. Oh, God, what is it? Is it the um, it's the Embarcadero, I think. And their shadow gets cast large on the building in front of them. That's supposed to have the sort of noir running through the empty streets of Rome or whatever, you know, sort of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exactly why they did that. And this is this sort of feeling is running throughout the entire movie. Yes, it's definitely there. And I think they integrated it really well. Yeah. I think it feels pretty seamless. It doesn't feel out of place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this will be the first time that we will hear the high screeching noises that they make. And those are also very scary. Did you think it was a cheap scare? How do you mean cheap? Just using a scary sound over and over again to scare you. No. Okay. No, I thought like, hey, if you're a human and you're trying and you're a, a plant, like, how would you alert the people around you that you see something important? What kind of alarm would you raise? Would you go, hey, hey, over here? No, of course, that's not the way you communicate. But they communicate this, like, by not even saying anything I, most of the time. Yeah, I I think they all know what they're supposed to do. I don't think it's some sort of hive mind, though. I don't think they're live communicating. They have an instinct. But if somebody learns information, I don't think they communicate that information telepathically or anything like that. So when they need to raise an alarm, they're just going to make a visceral sort of release of noise and that's what that's exactly what they do and belichick gets you know a hair up his ass and he does the thing where i'll save all of you and he runs off and they chase after him and fucking nancy the stupidest thing she does in this movie yeah the worst thing she does but it's it's, her husband but it is turned on its head later it is uh she runs off after him and so now sutherland and elizabeth I, i we're mixing their names up Benell and Elizabeth, Matthew, I guess is his name. They keep calling him Matthew. Matthew. (laughs) Matthew and Elizabeth are left on their own, and they get separated from these two. But they very quickly get found out again. They try to walk around and not get caught, but they get caught very quickly. And so they begin to run 
And yeah, the the chasing scenes are very well done. Because oh, yeah. Just the interesting angles and the, yeah, we get a lot of feet, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. This is when he will finally kiss her because he real he's realizing he might not get another chance. Yeah. But very quickly, Elizabeth gets very tired because remember, guys, she hasn't had a full night's sleep in mm-hmm. a very long time. Right? Yep. In like the past couple days. That's that's the other problem that both this movie and the new movie face. Time passing is a little wonky. Well, this this all takes place in a couple of days, like you say. She sleeps poorly, but she fell asleep earlier when Sutherland had to save her. She fell asleep that night when all of them fell asleep. And so, like, she does get bursts of sleep, whereas in the invasion, like, she never fucking sleeps. Right. Because in that version... In that version, you change. Yes. Which you is do, different. You don't have a new body. Yeah. They will eventually be caught by Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, so they go back to their office to test that sample uh, and maybe hide out. And yes, they do get caught there by Leonard Nimoy telling them that, you know what, you won't even feel a thing. You still have all of your memories. And Belichick is there. And he's changed now, too. He's telling them the same thing. Listen, it's peaceful. You know, you never have to feel a pain. There won't be any wars. Like, this is all a good thing. And you keep all your memories. I remember everything. I just, I don't, I don't hurt anymore. You know, basically trying to compel them to just acquiesce. They refuse as they, as they're getting carried away. They fight back and then they throw them in this locker room thing. Uh, I guess where samples live or something, there's a window into it that they can lock from the outside, and they run away. While Nimoy is trying to convince them that everything will be better, Uh he says an interesting line. Because as Chris points out, they're, they're trying to explain that, look, we've gotten rid of your wars. When you're us, you don't have a reason to hate. Uh huh. But he stops for a moment, and then he says, or love. Yes. And that's that's the trade-off. Like, that's what you have to give up in order to not have wars. You know, it's, it's the conversation I have with my seventh graders when we sit down to mm-hmm. read The Giver. You know, it's, are you willing to give up everything for this perfect life in utopia? Yep. I love that, for some reason, Sutherland's character... Feels like he should plead with Nimoy. Yeah. Because as he's injecting him, he keeps saying to him, David, you're killing me. Yes. David, you're killing me. Oh, God, that's so good. David, you're killing me. David. It is really good. Oh, my God, I forgot about that. But it's also just like. He doesn't care. Yeah, but Sutherland. Right, but you don't want to admit that your friend who is the smartest man you know, who you look up to and admire and love, that they're gone and they're not inside. And and these pod people are trying to compel you with the fact that yes, no, I'm still here. I have all these memories. They just don't react emotionally to them. So, but he's trying just his last ditch effort like I know you're injecting me, which, by the way, is an injection to get them to fall asleep. He's, it's just his last-ditch effort. It's just, you realize what you're doing is you're, 
you're killing me. Like, he's trying to connect to him intellectually. You know, hit those emotional triggers. Because that's where Nimoy's emotional triggers are in his intellect. And when he realizes that none of that is going to work, he says, you know what, there are people who will fight you. And he's like, I don't understand why. You're evolving. Yeah. Come and watch. But they get away. Yeah. And they run down the stairs and they run into Veronica Cartwright. Yes. Who is still okay. Yeah. For a moment, they look at her and she's like, I lost Jack. And they're like, oh, thank God, it's you. And they're like, yeah, Jack. uh, No, they don't. (laughs) They don't tell her her that. Oh, that's right. I don't know if she ever finds out. I think she figures it she out. She figures it out. But there are a couple of moments where she's like, what happened to Jack? Uh, we got to go. You know, like, it's one of those sorts of things. I think but she she's figures the one, it out. She's she, a pretty smart yeah. lady. She is the one who figures out, though, that if you just act like you're emotionless, they ignore you. Yes. It's great because they ask her. They're like, uh, how are you okay? And she's like, they can be fooled. If you don't show emotions... Uh, we'll be okay. And they're like, well, what do we do about sleeping? And she's like, well, we'll just watch each other while we sleep. Or maybe uh-huh. Sutherland says says that. Yeah. And Sutherland is determined we're going to beat them. But while walking around trying to appear non-emotional, they see something which was terrifying. How did they do that? What? If it was in about? camera. What are you talking about? The dog with the human face. Oh, that is, they they literally put something on the head of a dog. So that's, okay, it's really interesting. There's this homeless banjo player who has a dog that we see throughout the movie. Uh, by the way, that banjo playing is Jerry Garcia. According to the director, they got Jerry Garcia to record some banjo. And he's playing the song, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad. But anyway, in the middle of the night, they see him sleeping with his dog next to a pod and Sutherland, I think it is kicks the pod as they walk by and it sort of leaks something out. And so later they see a pod version of the dog, but with the banjo player's face. And then it comes and it has this, it licks its face or whatever. It's terrifying. (laughs) I got to say it's much better than the, what is it? The baby face dogs we were talking about in, in the other episode. Yes. Yeah. No, this looked weird. It's unsettling. It's not necessarily realistic, but it's a little unsettling. And that's too much for Elizabeth. And she screams when she sees that, Uh which is immediately they get found. Right. And it's just like time to fucking go, people. So they do. And they wind up at the factory where they grow and cultivate the pods. Which, again, doesn't make a lot of sense because... It's it's where they now grow and cultivate the pods. It's not where it started. I guess. Now that they have enough people converted, they can start up a faster transformation process. Now that they can capture people and it doesn't need to be done covertly, which is the natural way, the unnatural way is by harvesting the pods in a hydroponic farm and then taking them full size to the people that they want to duplicate. So it's almost like, hey, the dangers of industrialization making you less human. And, you know, there's kind of that element there if we want to talk about metaphors of society. And, of course, they find that they're shipping them out. 
Yes. So they they end up hiding at a certain place. And what's the song they hear? They hear like bagpipes. Oh. It goes from being... Uplifting. Uplifting to being oppressive. Because they... I forget... God, what the fuck is the song? Why can't I think of it? Is it Amazing Grace? It might be Amazing Grace. It's playing right now under where we're talking, so you'll know what, what song we're talking about. He realizes the boats. The boats, they've been on sea. We can get away on a boat. And the people in the boats are probably fine. And so he's like, you stay here, Elizabeth. I'll be right back and check on it. I'll put myself in danger by going out in the open and looking at the boat. And he realizes they're fucking loading the pods onto the boats. Yes. Son of a bitch. And so when he goes back. Did you see back, they were also watching the weather? No. Yeah. There were people that they when they go by that are watching the weather. That's interesting. He goes back only to find Elizabeth asleep and decomposing. Yes. And she just evaporates practically yeah, in his arms her as and he's she holding just withers her. away. Yeah, and then she stands up again naked. And naked. It's her pod version trying to convince him that it's okay, Matthew. It's painless. It's yeah. good. Come sleep. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so good. So Matthew's on his own and he runs away. So he goes back to the warehouse. Where he's going to set it ablaze. He just destroys as absolutely much as he can. There's this giant inferno that comes out of the door at one point. He apparently insisted on doing all of his own stunts. So that's why we get this wide angle shot of him that doesn't cut away. Coming through the window, down the roof, onto the onto the uh, the truck, and then onto the boxes, and then onto the ground. He runs past this open door just as this blaze comes out of the open door and catches a stuntman running behind him. That's all actually Donald Sutherland. And he destroys as much as he can. And then the scene cuts as if we need to believe that he got away. And then we see him sort of going about his day, acting as emotionless as possible while everyone around him has obviously been converted. And he is going about his day. But what he does really bothers me. What does he do? He cuts something out of a newspaper, and we don't get to see what it is. Oh, it's like a, a coupon. He does. He cuts something out of the newspaper in the beginning, too. Does he? Yeah, it's part of his routine. It's something he does. Oh. But he goes about his day trying to be as emotionless as possible, and we see him walk across this courtyard, and we hear... Matthew? Matthew? And he turns, and he sees Veronica Cartwright, and she is relieved. She's like, oh my god, Matthew, you're still fine. Until he lifts up his finger and points at her, and lets go one of those screeches that the plant people do. And we realize, nope, he was caught, and he was converted. And she just loses her mind, like... A chestburster just popped out of him. <laughs> yes. Oh, God! <laughs> yes. And that's where the movie ends. Yes. Which is not how the original ends. Is the original a happy ending? Yeah. Apparently, Kaufman, the director, had a meeting with Don Siegel. Don Siegel is the original director of the 56 version, just to, like, talk over the ideas and stuff. And this was apparently also the day that Kevin McCarthy was there. The running man, the original star of the original. And so he's like, oh, great. The director of that movie is here. I'm going to talk. And so the three of them started like brainstorming ideas. How can they change the ending? How can they be respectful, but 
end it better than the original did because they're like, yeah, you know, it was basically a, a normal ass ending, just like you would expect, you know? So, but ultimately the only people that knew how the movie was going to end were Kaufman, the director, WD Richter, the writer and Donald Sutherland. Cause they hadn't told anybody how the movie was going to end yet at this point, uh, when they're going to film this final scene. And he says there it's in this article in, Hollywood reporter there's this basically all the information that you've ever heard about this movie about insight into the making of the movie comes from this one fucking article in the Hollywood reporter but uh Kaufman tells this story about how he was like if Sutherland put his feet down and decided he wasn't going to do it it would have basically ruined the movie but when Sutherland was told how they wanted to end it he was all for it they didn't tell Veronica Cartwright like what was going to happen there I don't know how far that goes because I know it wasn't like ad-libbed entirely or anything. She might have known something was going to happen, but she didn't know he was going to point his finger and scream like the plant people did. And so they were trying to get like this authentic reaction out of her. Who knows if that's the actual take that they used in the movie? I don't know. But it was like this big sort of what a twist. You know what I mean? What a twist. What did you think of at the ending? It's interesting that you say that the 56 version ends a happy way. Because I always thought that these movies ended with the whole, it could be there, next to you, you don't know, you're next. What movie ends that way? I thought it was in black and white. That's why I thought it was from the original. So I was kind of expecting that No, that, that is. Kind of They're here already. You're next. You're next. That is from the original. Is that not how it ends? No. Okay. So he does that same thing that he does in this version. I thought he pointed at the audience and said, it could be there next probably, to you. Again, I haven't seen it. I'm just reading this here. And then it ends as a flashback. He's in the hospital. These characters are like, oh, he's crazy. And then there's some sort of accident that people were bringing in a truck driver into the hospital and... They tell them he had to be dug out from under a load of giant seed pods. The doctor there now has to believe Benel and gets them to, he calls the FBI and gets them to shut down all roads and everything like that. Like something's going to happen. Mm. That's where that ends. Mm. That's how I was expecting it to end. Yeah. So it wasn't a shock to me that he was a, a, a pod person, but... I wasn't expecting that ending, which is funny because that's the shot that everyone Oh, that uses. shot is the shot from this movie. Yeah, so, like, it's bizarre to me that I never put the two together, but I had never seen of, the movie. Yeah, but it kind of lulls you into, again, the character work in this movie is incredible. You love Elizabeth. You love Matthew. You love Belichick. You love Nancy. These characters are really great, and you kind of fall in love with them. So it is tragic. Either you know it's coming and it's tragic because you know it's coming or you forget that it's coming because you become so intimate with these people. It does a really good job of that, I would say. I really liked the electronic score in the movie. There's like these pulsing sounds. And so this is kind of a mixture of two people. It's uh, Denny Zeitlin who did the music. He did the musical score. 
and it's Ben Burt who did the sound effect design. Ben Burt is the guy who did the sound effect design for Star Wars. Like that was the last movie he did before he did this movie. So all the sounds of the trash truck and these sort of throbbing sounds that happen throughout the movie, they're disorienting. They're pulsating, almost like you would expect this dangerous plant pod to pulsate. You know what I mean? Like it just has that feeling every once in a while throughout the movie. I really enjoyed that. I thought it had a pretty cool score, not necessarily readily identifiable and unique in that way, but effective, I would say. I really liked it. There's another cameo we don't talk about. At one point, they get into a taxi. And the taxi driver tries to act normal, but also tries to get as much information as possible. And then tries to hand them over to the police. Where are you headed? Yeah. I said the airport. (laughs) Yeah, but what airline? United. (laughs) Oh, where are you headed? We're not. (laughs) We're meeting a friend who's flying in from Boston or whatever it is. Yeah. That taxi driver is Don Siegel, the original director of the 56 version. So he had his own cameo. Cool. So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to guess very high, 96. Not far off, 93%. Employing gritty camera work and evocative sound effects. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Invasion. Guys, you should have seen his face. He's so excited. (laughs) Vindication! Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a powerful remake that expands upon themes and ideas only lightly explored in the original. A Metacritic of 75. And I think the reason is, is that when the movie first came out, it was just kind of, eh. Yeah, it's good. And it got more popularity as time went on. That's pretty surprising. This movie, this movie surprised me. Yeah. I was not expecting it to be anywhere near as good as it was. So do you think 93 is overrated or underrated? I'm trying to decide what I want to give it. I think the movie's so well shot, so well acted, well written, surprising, gross, scary, creepy, but a little long. A little long. Things were in it that didn't need to be in it. There's a whole segment we don't talk about where Benel is trying to get answers from people in the government. Which is a very effective scene, but not useful for our summary purposes. Right. I mean, everything in this movie is good. There's yeah. nothing about this movie that's, like, bad. But it, there's just parts where you're like... There's maybe this, a little too much of it. You could have taken this out. Yeah. And no one would have cared. Yeah. So... But, like, if that's the worst thing we're going to say... Like, if it, we were talking about Exorcist the Beginning last week, and it's like, no, this this movie is just, like, painfully long... And boring, even when exciting stuff is happening. Like, it is way longer than it needs to be. Or was that The Heretic? I don't even remember. I think they were both that way. I think they both were that yeah. way. This isn't like that. It's just, just a little too long. And that's, that's like, the worst thing we can say about it. Yeah. So, I'm going to give it a 95. 95 is pretty dang good. Yeah. And I, um, the length is an issue just because I feel like, you know, like they go from scene to scene and it feels like what has changed, you know? Oh, they're running again. Oh, they're in safety. Oh, they're running again. Oh, they're in safety. Right. And like, normally that would make me mad, but it's all so well done. Yes. That it's okay. All those scenes are really good. So, yeah. 
maybe just maybe just one point lower. I'll go with a 94. But this I was I again, I'd never seen this movie before. I was very pleasantly surprised that it held up to its status as a horror classic. Mm-hmm. So very, very happy about that. Kelsey, before we move on to the next movie in this double feature. The late night double feature show. Horror trivia. In what horror movie do we see Kevin Bacon impaled in his throat with an arrow? Friday the 13th. That's correct. Kelsey, what is the name of the disease that young Oliver had in his childhood? ADEM. You got it right. Did you look at your notes? No. (laughs) Nice. It's acute disseminated encephalomyelitis or acute demyelinating encephalomyelitis. (laughs) Guys, this is the first time in a long time that we've done this, like, right after we've watched a movie. So that's why I kind of keep bringing up the invasion, I think. We watched it last night, Because it's so fresh in my mind. So that's probably why I kept bringing it up. And that's why I definitely knew it was ADM, because we just watched it last night. Yeah, well, we say that now. We're going to record that tomorrow, so it will be two days old by the time we actually record this this next segment. Uh, but good, awesome. I'm really glad that you got that. Uh, that brings us right into our next movie, 2007's The Invasion, also based on the novel by Jack Finney, written by David Kajanik. Kajganic? I don't know. It has a G following a J. That's really fucking weird. Um, <laughs> It's really insensitive of you. <laughs> no, it's just something I don't see every day, so I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm not saying it's stupid or anything. <laughs> Directed by Oliver Hirschbiegel with an uncredited reshoot by James McTeague, starring Nicole Kidman, Daniel Craig, Jeremy Northam, and Jeffrey Wright. Originally, it was called The Visiting because there was a TV series on the air uh, on ABC called Invasion, and they didn't want it to be confused. And then the TV show was canceled during the long production period of this movie. Like I said, there were a lot of reshoots, and so they they changed it back to the Invasion. But the reason it's not called Invasion of the Body Snatchers is because Kajganik, Kajanik, whatever his name is, thought that he changed just enough to where the the concept is different, and so it was more of an homage. But like I said earlier, no, no this is a this is totally an adaptation. Totally an adaptation. One hundred percent an adaptation. I don't know how high and mighty. There's very little difference here. Yeah, it seems. Oh, they changed the main character to a woman, and they gave her a son. Kids, and there aren't. And there's a cure. There aren't pod people. But otherwise, it's the same fucking movie. I actually meant to bring that up. Uh-huh. I actually meant to bring that up. I That was another thing. I had always heard the term pod people, mm-hmm. but I had never associated it with Body Snatchers because one of my favorite movies, the fucking faculty, is how... Okay, the faculty is how I know the most about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's so funny. So... I always thought that's what it was. It was you turn into the thing. Like, it gets into you and then you become it. Like like they do in this movie. Yeah. And again, I had seen this. I had seen the invasion. So, like, that's what I thought it was. So, I think maybe that's why I was so repulsed and shocked when they did the whole body changing scene. Because I was so not expecting it. There is a movie. If you're looking for it on IMDb, it is called Extraterrestrial Visitors. 
but I know it as Pod People. It was an episode of Mystery Science Theater that I owned on VHS when I was younger. Huh, now this guy's got Renaissance Festival written all over him. Huzzah! That's where I know the term Pod People from. But yes, it's absolutely this movie. <laughs> That's so funny. Interesting. I wonder if they turn into different people in the old one. I've seen the beginning of the old one, but just the very beginning. Well, we know there are giant plant pods. Oh. So, yeah, okay. from that ending description I just read. Yes. Yeah, so there you go. Hmm. The movie is $3 to rent on Amazon, Google, YouTube, Fandango, and Voodoo, $4 on iTunes, uh, Microsoft, and DirecTV. It's about $10 to buy, depending on which retailer you go with. Should people watch The Invasion? I would suggest that you just watch the original. The original is good enough on its own. You don't need the new one. You mean the 78 version? Yeah, the yeah. 78 version. I If I would watch, if you're going to watch the 78 version, there's no reason to watch this one. But that being said, it is not that bad of a remake. Okay. I thought the same thing. But as the movie went on, I actually wrote a note here. The movie burns whatever goodwill it has by the end. And quickly, which is disappointing. I'm okay with a happy ending. No, that's not what I mean. It's just like, it just kind of all falls apart. It's like they didn't know how to end it. And it's just convoluted and contrived. Like all the tense stuff. And they even spend more time with the concept of trying to pretend like you're emotionless to fool them. This movie is more about that. And I really liked that. And there's more tension there. But then it, by the time it turns into an action movie... It burns up all of its goodwill. <laughs> I think that's exactly the problem with this movie is that it turns into an action movie and it shouldn't. There's one action moment in the, I mean, I wouldn't call the smashing the face of the pod person in an action moment. I mean, when he destroys the factory there, that's like the only action point in the entire 1978 version. But this movie, the latter third is just like an action movie all of a sudden. Yes, this movie is definitely messy, for sure. It does some fun things with editing. There's some montages oh, that it that, does. I was going to say that its editing is messy. It is messy, but I think it's interesting where, like, it it sort of zippers the not, end of one scene with the beginning well, of the next scene. I agree. In my opinion. It does that, like, two times in the movie, and I was really intrigued by the concept where it's like they're talking about what they're going to do and that's intercut with them actually doing it. And it's not like, hey, you do want to see the future, what our plan is going to be. It's no, that is them actually doing it. And the line between when we cut from one scene to the other is a little bit blurred in that way. It's an interesting concept of that zippering, that montaging, I guess you could say. But like you say, it is a little messy. Yeah, you take the good, you take the bad. You really don't have to watch it. If you watch it, it's not going to be the worst movie you see, but you don't have to. But The Invasion of the Body Snatchers is free. The Invasion is not. If you watch, have a Prime subscription. Watch yeah, Invasion uh, of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah. If you have Prime. Or Hoopla or Criterion or Showtime or DirecTV. It's available in a lot more places. And it's only 3 or $4 to rent. So, like, watch that version, man. Mm -hmm. This is definitely the inferior version by far. But... It's not saying much because the 78 version is just so good. Yes. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2007's The Invasion. I need to ask you a few questions. At 11 o'clock at night. Quick and painless. 
What if the world you knew was being replaced? My husband is not my husband. Every person. What are you really inoculating them for? Tell me. Every feeling. Don't show emotion. Then they can't tell who's who. On August 17th. We're gonna get through this. You could be next. Academy Award winner Nicole Kidman. I got you one of them, aren't you? We have to stop you. The Invasion, rated PG-13, starts August 17th. Kelsey, can you get us started? How does The Invasion begin? We begin with the end, where Nicole Kidman is desperately trying to stay awake, and there are people that are locked up trying to get out. Yes. She's in a pharmacy rummaging through the medication, and then there's an employees-only room where there's banging from the other side. I don't quite understand why they started here. It doesn't really do anything for the movie. It Well, you know, you got to start, if it's going to get exciting, but it's going to start slow, you got to start in media res and then flashback to how it all began. I guess. But we see that a space shuttle is exploding as it rams into the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. When the government goes in to look at it, they immediately see that it is contaminated with spores from space. Yes. Immediately, this guy, who is the father of Dr. Bunnell's son. Yes, the baby daddy. Uh, will be approached by a person living out there and will say, this fell on our roof. And yeah. he'll pick it up and he'll get his finger cut and that's all it takes. Yep. They don't waste any time. So the scale of this one is going to be much bigger than the previous one. In Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's like, oh, it's it's all of San Francisco and government agencies start to get infested and, you know, at least local ones do. And, and oh, they're putting it on boats. It's going to get bigger. But in this one, it's like federal agencies like right away get infested. Like it becomes a giant thing. That's why this starts in Washington, D.C. Yes. As opposed to San Francisco. Yes. And they will make an interesting comment later. They will talk about the fact that in every other country, it's being taken care of like a pandemic. Yeah. But here, <laughs> we only call it a flu for some reason. Like, it's so on the nose. It is you very on the nose. You think it was made this year. You would. But it wasn't. Nope. They just predicted our future. Yep. The, that's the Wachowskis. I don't know. Maybe. Did you know that? That when they did the reshoots with... James McTeague, they got the Wachowski sisters to uh, do rewrites, and that's what McTeague filmed. I had no and idea. neither of them get credited. <laughs> I did not know that. But so this guy comes home to his girlfriend who's annoyed because she's just like, if you're just going to go to bed, like, I'm pissed that I could have been at my own house sleeping. Yeah. But the next time we see her, she'll be taken over by an alien. Well, so it's none a, of this matters. It's a little cameo by Malin. Ackerman. Malin? Malin? Ackerman? She was in Watchmen. As who? As the Silk Spectre 2 or whatever. Oh, yes. Yes. I knew I recognized her. Yeah. And that night we will see that he is being taken over by CG. There's a lot of CG in this movie. Mm, yeah. And it's not great. No. It's pretty bad. Meanwhile, Kidman's son is having nightmares. What they won't tell you is that time has passed. Oh, my God. It's so weird. <laughs> like, the editing here is bizarre. I was very unsure of what was happening. I thought, because the next scene we get is that, like, she's on her phone behind a desk. And then the scene directly after that, it's morning still. 
and she's making breakfast for Oliver and she's getting him ready for school. And it's like, wait, did she go to her home office? Did she get dressed and then did she get back in her pajamas? It's very bizarrely edited to where it doesn't feel like time has passed, but time has passed. Yeah, you need to kind of, you figure it out on Halloween because you're like, wait a minute, all of a sudden he's going to his dad's house on Halloween night. And they say it's been a couple days that he's been having these nightmares. And, and from what they've shown you, it feels like it's been a day. Yeah. They also say that he's been having the nightmares again, because he used to have them, ever since he found out he was going to see his father again. But we know that's not true. Yes. Because we see his first nightmare immediately before the father asked to see his kid. Yeah. So the timing here is not clear at yeah. all. But yeah, so she will... Exactly. After she has taking care of her son who's having a nightmare is when she gets the call that yeah. he wants to see his son. Uh-huh. It's very confusing. But he's very obviously not himself over the phone. He's just like, Carol, how are you? She says, I am fine. Or, or he's, he says, she says something and she asks him, how are you? And he goes, I am fine. I am back in D.C. I want to see Oliver. Yeah. And, and she's she like, no, you've been out of his life for years now. It'd be too weird. He's like, he's my son. I have a right. Yes. So that's what's happening here. And then all of a sudden it'll be Halloween and the day that he's going to see him. Yeah. It's an interesting idea to put it on Halloween because it's a good way to spread it. I, I thought that was fascinating. I thought that worked incredibly well. Yeah. So they have these weird plasma wisps, kind of like what you see at the beginning of the first film or the 1978 film. But that's all it will be are these weird membrane Yeah, it's things. like this weird skin membrane, uh, like gelatin, gelatinous sort of thing that when they go back to the house to um, sort through all the candy, all the kids. So Nicole Kidman and one of the kids' moms, the ones who are talking about the nightmares and all that, are, are like hosting this group of kids that go trick-or-treating. And as they're digging through their candy... This lady's kid is like really stoic and separated from the rest of the group. Yeah, uh huh. And they're like, "Hey, what's going on?" We also find out that Nicole Kidman has her son on medication to For deal with nightmares. the nightmares. Yeah, and she doesn't like it, but it's the only thing that makes him not have these nightmares. Kidman is—I don't think we've mentioned this. She is a therapist, which is why she's picking up on all these things. Yeah, it makes a little more sense that she would. She's just like aren't you worried about your son? And she's like, not really, because there's a flu going around. Yeah, I figured maybe he just has that flu that's going around, yeah. And Kidman's like, what flu? What are you talking about? This is where the kids find this membrane thing, and they're all freaking out about it. And Nicole Kidman's like, oh, this is weird. And she packages it up and sends everyone else home. Yeah, we didn't mention that during the day of Halloween before the night of Kidman is walking around the city and everything is normal, as it should be. People are yelling, people are running, uh -huh. uh, there are car honks and stuff like that. So they're trying to show us what life should be like versus what it becomes. Uh -huh. We also didn't mention that during the day of Halloween is when we get the cameo of... Veronica Cartwright. Yes, and she will be the one to say... My husband is not, not my, my husband. husband. My husband is not my husband. Yes, which Nicole Kidman will Google later. Yes. And she explains that Bobo knew it too, their dog. 
And because Holy of that, shit. because of that, her husband killed the dog. Just straight up kills the dog. To which Nicole Kidman says, oh, I'll just give you medication. And it's like, what? Yes. We what? all go, are you kidding me? Her husband killed the dog and didn't react. And, and you your give, her medication? give her medication? She will regret that later. Yes. Audibly. Like, she'll say, oh, all I did was give her antipsychotics. Yes. Just like Kevin McCarthy had a cameo from the original movie. He had a cameo in the 78 version. Veronica Cartwright from the 78 version has a cameo in this version. Yes. So the next day, Kidman will notice a woman randomly running and crying through the crowd and yeah. nobody notices. So that's kind of their call back to how the 1978 version had a bunch of weird things happening yeah. in the background that you didn't notice. Uh -huh. This is a little bit more to the foreground. Well, the first time the person runs across the street terrified for their life, the camera does focus on them, but it doesn't follow them. True. Um, so it's it feels more like that moment. But so she's talking to... The father of her husband, I think. Or maybe this is on television. I'm not sure. But they're talking about an inoculation. Oh, yes. No, because he works for the CDC. And they're like, how on earth could you get an inoculation so quickly? Yeah. And he says, well, you don't have to take it if you don't want it. And she's like, no, we'll do it. Because it's all the drug companies that are going to get this, this inoculation. And we'll earn money for it. Yes, because they've, they're they now calling this a national medical mm -hmm. emergency. They're not going to ask any questions because everyone's going to want this inoculation and they get to charge money for it. But they're not just spreading it through, like, Halloween candy. They're also spreading it through drinks. Yeah, so. they, like, vomit into drinks like the hand puppet from <laughs> Rock, and, Rock Roll and Roll Nightmare. Nightmare. Yes, that's it. Yes, they all vomit into drinks. That's right. He's giving, like, a speech... Somewhere. Yeah, to pharmaceutical companies. And we yeah. see that they are throwing up into their water uh -huh. that they're drinking. Also, Cartwright noted, my husband keeps trying to get me to drink and I'm uh -huh. not thirsty. Yeah. And at this press conference, the father of Bunnell's son, Kidman's son, says, no, no, we like your questions. It's those questions that got you to the moon. Yeah. And it's a very weird thing to uh -huh. say. As if... Hey, the fact that you were in space is what allowed us to get to Earth. Yes. I'm curious, if you just cracked this new virus, how are you ready with vaccines so quickly? I wish there were more time to go over all of the science and the internal processes behind this project. If you require more information, I'd suggest you bow out of this round of contracts and give us some time to prepare you a fact sheet. Is that what you'd like, Mrs. Cunningham? Not at all. Just a question. Well, we like those. We like questions. They got you to the moon. This is Jeremy Northam, by the way, playing Tucker Kaufman. Kidman is in the car with her co-worker, who we haven't even mentioned. Daniel Craig. Yes, 007, before he was 007. Just before. Apparently, while he was filming this, he found out he got the role. Oh, really? Yeah, interestingly... He's in this movie with uh, his good friend in the movie, Jeffrey Wright, who is Felix Leiter in the 007 movies that Daniel Craig is Bond. He's like the American version of Bond. He works for the CIA. And they become friends in, in um, Casino Royale. Sure. Felix Leiter has been a character in James Bond movies for a very long time. Sure. 
<laughs> I know nothing about 007. I've seen so many of those movies and I don't retain any of it because I'm pretty much sitting there bored most uh-huh. of the time. Most people know him from Westworld. He's Bernard from Westworld. But so Daniel Craig and her are driving in the car. So basically Daniel Craig is Benell from 1978, essentially. But Nicole Kidman's name is Benell. Yes. Yes. I don't know. I don't know what they were doing. Yeah, they kind of mixed a lot of the characters up. But so they're in the car... And they're driving, and they get stopped by a lady who jumps on their car saying, Uh they're coming, we gotta warn people, they're among us. They're so frightened that Nicole Kidman stops the car and gets out and sees that the woman is now dead. And there's a crowd around her, just like in the first film. But just like in the first film, it's not over the phone, it's actually in person. The cops pull over, and Kidman approaches a cop, and she's like, hey... I can tell you what happened. I'm a witness. Where do you want me to go so that I can put my statement down? Mm-hmm. And they're like, we don't need you. We got your plates. You can go. And she's like, why did you get my plates? Yeah. And he's like, you can go, ma'am. Why did you get my plates? Ma'am, go back to your car. I've got to clear the traffic out of this tunnel. I saw it happen. Where would you like me to wait for a statement? I, I'm a witness. I took down your plates. Well, h- hold on. Why did you take down my plates? Why did you take down my plates? If we need you, we'll be in touch. Never seen anything like it. They don't want to take a statement from me. <laughs> but so she drops off her son, finally. And it's like, you better just say goodbye right now, lady, because you ain't ever going to see your, him again. Yeah. Nope. She is. <laughs> but so they are going to this fancy dinner, which is kind of like the book signing that they go to in, in the 1978 version. Yes, Daniel Craig, Ben Driscoll, is friends with uh, Dr. Henrik Belichick. Yes, they decided to turn wife. the Belichicks into old people from Russia. They're Czech. Whatever. And they're hardly in the movie. Yeah. We do get Roger Reese in this, who... A lot of people may know from Cheers. You probably know him from Robin Hood Men in Tights. He's the Sheriff of Nottingham. Anyway, (laughs) he plays the Russian ambassador. And so there's this back and forth between the two of them. He starts asking questions of Nicole Kidman. And Nicole Kidman impresses him with her viewpoint of the world. Oh, well, that's actually a different person. That's their friend Yorish. Yeah, that that's Roger Reese. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Yorish is the one who says... That we are animals driven by instincts, to which Kidman responds, when people talk to me about what other people are, I know they're talking about themselves. Yeah. But this will, of course, become important later, because that is true. That is what makes us human, is our instincts. And that those instincts are what's going to save her later. Yeah. But so, I was just really disappointed, because it's like, if you ever have a Jeff Goldblum character, and you're just going to turn it into this nothing character. It's like, Jeff Goldblum brings life and fun to any yes, movie he that really, he's in. he really does. So it was a disappointment that they took his character and just turned him into this nothing character. Yeah. Meanwhile, we do get a couple of shots of the son playing with his friend. Oh, we get a lot of shots of their 
PSPs. Yes. I remember when this movie came out, it was a big thing that just like the PSP was fucking everywhere in this movie. <laughs> PlayStation Portable. But so one of them will say something's wrong with my dad and the other one will say, yeah, my dad too. But uh-huh. they don't they don't go any further than that because they're children. Uh-huh. So when Craig drops Kidman off at her house, they will kiss, to which Kidman will say, I can't do this. I can't lose you as a friend. And he's like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I was totally in the wrong. I took advantage of my drunk friend. Like, he's putting all the blame on himself as it's if great. to, like, lighten the mood. And It's yeah. great. Uh-huh. Why can't all men and women relationships <laughs> be like that? Where it's like... No, no, we should just be friends. And his response is, you're absolutely right. You were drinking. Wow, I can't believe I tried to take advantage of this situation. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fabulous if all men worked that way? <laughs> that night, she will be accosted by a quote-unquote census taker who wants into her house. Okay, yeah, and like, oh, holy shit. Like, this escalates the, like immediately things get really fucking weird and violent. Like he tries to force his way into her home and she manages to prevent him from doing so. But still like, what the fuck? She gets all panicky and he just stares at her through the giant plane of glass in her door. (laughs) That he could have broken. Yeah. He's willing to smash through the door, but not break the glass. Hey, maybe it's unbreakable. Sure, shatterproof glass. Yeah, you don't know. (laughs) It's in her little, like, mudroom entryway thing that she has. But so she tries to call the police, to which she gets, all circuits are busy, which is never a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, uh uh-huh. But then she ends up calling Craig over, whose name is Ben, by the way. Yes. So Ben comes over to take care of her. It's very cute. She wakes up in the morning and he's made her breakfast, even though he burnt the pancakes. It's very cute. It's very cute, yes. And he tries to tell her, you can't go into work. And she's like, oh, I have to. I've got back-to-backs, right? And uh, as she walks to work, she suddenly notices life is not as it should be. Everyone is standing still. Right. Everyone's going about their day perfectly peacefully. They're all calmly waiting for it to turn green. It's not these individuals whose lives are smashing into each other with a lot of noise. It's everyone is single file. Everyone's uh driving normally. And when she comes into her office, her secretary is sitting there talking to a delivery man. A delivery man. Mm. And... Kidman is like, so is everybody coming? And she's like, oh, you've actually had several cancellations. It must be the flu that's going around. Yeah. And she's way too calm about it. So you know that she's in on yeah, it. Yeah, well, then she immediately, when uh, Nicole Kidman leaves, the secretary immediately looks at the delivery man and, like, they know something's going on. Yes, And so she finds that her first cancellation of the day was Cartwright. So she immediately calls because she's very concerned. The husband says... Yeah, so the husband's there. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. That all happened earlier. We skipped it. Oh, okay. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so originally the husband shows up at her office and is like, is my wife here yet? Well, her appointment's not till nine o'clock or whatever. Oh, well, she was not home. So I'm looking for her, and when she gets here, I'm going to take her home. And Nicole Kidman's like, okay, Mr. Lank, just wait here, and I'll 
see if I can contact her. Goes into her office and contacts her on her cell phone, on her cellular telephone, because the way they deal with cell phones in this movie is is fascinating because it's like right before iPhones. <laughs> and so everyone's like, oh, her phone has text messaging. Yeah, well, everybody has... No, she didn't text message her. She called No, her. I know, but... She will text message with her son, Oliver, yes. like several times throughout the movie. And Ben is like, oh, your phone has text messaging and his is a flip phone, which apparently doesn't. Which is why it's so incredibly obvious later on in the movie when they get those phones mixed up. I don't mean the characters. I mean, the movie confuses these phones. But anyway, she calls Veronica Cartwright, Mrs. Lank, and... Cartwright is on her way rushing to her office. And it's like, I need to talk to you. Da, 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 da. And Nicole Kidman says, uh, your husband's here. And I did not want you to be blindsided by that. And Lank is like, okay, good. Thank you very much. Keep him there as long as you can. I really appreciate it. And then Nicole Kidman can see her through the window. She turns around and runs off. Yes. Yes. So that happened earlier. That, that happened at some point. Yeah. At this point, though... At this point, Mrs. Lank has not shown up for her appointment, and so she calls her because she's very concerned about her. But she doesn't answer the phone. Her husband does, and he says, don't worry about my wife. She's sleeping right now. Everything is fine. Yeah. Because that means that she's changing. Yes, as we all know, the sleeping is what does it. And that's when she starts to get really scared, and that's when she's like, oh my god, what if what everyone is saying is true? And then she starts... Googling, my, my husband, husband is not, not my husband. husband. My, my son wife is, is not, not my, my wife. Son. My son is not my son. Yeah. I thought it was a clever way of showing her how much it's spread. Yeah. No, sure. But I just mean the fact that she Googles, my husband is not my husband. Yes. As if those are magic words or something. And as she's doing this, her secretary will walk in and very much, very desperately wants her to drink some tea. Oh, and this is a new tea. This is a, it's not the normal tea. This is a new tea that I got for you. But Kidman gets interrupted by a phone call, so she doesn't drink the tea. So she goes and sees Jeffrey Wright as well as Daniel Craig. She gave them the skin thing sample that she got from Halloween earlier to investigate it. And he is just filled with information. Oh, he is just an expo dump. Like, <laughs> it, okay, so the the crazy thing is, is that there's this, it's Washington, D.C., and they are high-level, you know, medical personnel. So they're tapped into all these scientists doing tests. And it's like, yeah, no, when I looked into this, a bunch of other people were already aware of it and they're already running tests. And this thing, it's a spore from space and it here's how it works. The process catalyzes while using sleep hormones and then you excrete it through your sweat glands and it solidifies. And that's why it gets this sort of like skin thing instead of evaporating. Also, I tried incinerating it and it wouldn't die to fire. So we just like, we learn all this stuff that there's some sort of underground scientist thing going on trying to solve this problem but that people are being infected and it's changing their behavior and like we get everything is out in the open as of this moment and this is when we'll learn that everywhere else calls it an epidemic except for us uh-huh and after she learns all this stuff don't they see somebody being taken over don't they witness it happening they're like i don't know if that's here but she sees Veronica Cartwright getting taken away screaming. 
something leads her to realizing, oh my God, I need to go get my son. Yes. Something makes her realize, holy shit, my son is in danger. So Jeffrey Wright's going to join the rest of these scientists to do more experimentation. And Ben is going to take care of Nicole Kidman. Not in this moment. In this oh, moment, she goes she, off on her own. She goes right? straight yeah. over to her ex's house. That's right. That's right. And when she's there, oh my god, her acting is terrible in this scene. Okay. This I, scene is really bad. I haven't mentioned this yet, but her accent is all over the place in yes, this movie. Yes, it is. I wouldn't have noticed it until you said it. It's either non-regional or it's some form of southern accent. And I understand that if you if you speak English but you don't speak an American dialect, probably the easiest accent you can do is a southern accent. Because it's like the closest to a British accent or, in Nicole Kidman's case, an Australian accent. Well, it's also – it's a twang sound that yeah, you can uh-huh. put easily onto your voice. Exactly. It, it It's easily identifiable where the pronunciation goes in a southern accent. And and so every once in a while, she'll – like, one scene will be non-regional. It, it was awful. You should have seen her face. She, she was terrified, Ben. And the police did nothing. Absolutely nothing. Another scene will be southern. She's dead. Dream. You got those nightmares back again, huh? And then back and forth. It makes me think that maybe the reshoots are the non-regional ones. <laughs> and they just didn't, you know, Kidman for didn't say, sake, excuse me. I did a southern doing... accent in this before. <laughs> or maybe she did. And McTeague was like, yeah, that was bad. <laughs> Nobody will notice. The acting here is really, really bad. So she is in his house, and he's got all these weird people in his house. And she's like, I'm taking my son, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And they are just, finally, they are out in the open. I mean, I don't say finally as in, like, it took forever. I mean, like, it's surprising how quickly they are uh-huh. out in the open about it. But then again, she just learned all about it, so why hide it, I guess. Uh, you can't forget, Kelsey, when she's packing up Oliver's things... She has to pack up the PSP. Does she? We got to get the PSP on screen. Yes. But so he will not let her out. All the doors are locked. They're all closing in on her. And they give her the speech at this point. Yes. When you wake up, you'll feel exactly the same. Like they do not waste any time just ramping up to full tension mode. Explain everything. You'll be the same. You'll still be you. It doesn't Mm -hmm. hurt. And then he he gets her down on the ground and he vomits on her. She gets away, but he says as she gets away, it's too late, Carol. It's done. Yeah. Because once that stuff gets into you, as soon as you fall asleep, you're done for. And we all know, because we've all seen Nightmare on Elm Street enough times, you can't not sleep. Yeah. Eventually you will fall asleep. You go. Is that the remake? I don't remember. I think it's the remake. I I, yeah. If you don't sleep... You go. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, as she's running away, they're all chasing after her. She's noticing that everyone around her is either changing or dying or being ran after. And so this is when she does the whole yelling in the street and jumping on people's cars. Yeah. And I loved that we got to see how that might have happened. To the other people we saw before. But I wish we hadn't seen it prior to this in the film. I do not understand that. Because I've seen the 78 version. I understand, but the poignancy of her doing this 
only makes sense if you've seen it happen to somebody else and you didn't know the context before. Otherwise, it's just like any other event in the movie. So, like, the only reason this is special is because you've seen that before. And if you haven't seen the original version, which when I first saw this movie, I hadn't, you have to have that moment first where you don't have the context in order for the reveal of the context to be impactful. I guess. But being someone who had just seen the 78 version, totally, I would have really enjoyed just seeing uh-huh. it from her perspective. Fair enough. I forget why, but she suddenly comes to the realization that if she just fakes it, she can get away with it. And somebody will say to her, yeah, she try goes to into come the down, yeah. calm down, don't show emotion, and they can't tell who's who. And it's like a person just walking by that it's says like a, it to her. No, it's like a doorman first in the building that she's out in front of. And he's like, you're sweating. They don't That's sweat. Later. That's later. So she gets on the subway, and there's some people on there, and you can tell that they are all terrified, but they're all doing their best to act like they're not terrified. Uh-huh. And so one of them turns to her and he's like, Try to calm down. You can fool them, but you gotta calm down. What? Don't show emotion. Then they can't tell who's who. John. Stay calm. His girlfriend or wife or whatever is like, stop it, don't talk to her. Uh But then she's the one who starts screaming. She's the one who fucking snaps. Immediately she breaks under the pressure. They come into this subway car and... As soon as they're in the car, she stands up and shouts at him, leave us alone. Leave Brittany alone. (laughs) She ends up grabbing a gun from like a police officer or or security guard or something. Uh But then she just drops it. Yeah. Which really pissed me off. Uh Uh-huh. That's one of Kelsey's biggest complaints about movies like this. You have a weapon and then you just leave it somewhere. Yes. She's walking down the street, and this woman walks by her, and she's just like, don't sleep, don't sleep, don't sleep, yeah, don't sleep. Uh-huh. And the cops attack that woman. Yes. And then this is when she the guy- She act like she's seen nothing, yeah. This is when the guy walks up next to her and is like, don't sweat, they can see it, and then he just walks away. Uh-huh. You're sweating. They don't do that, they'll know. Now go away from here. That's when she will then see two people commit suicide, and a woman will scream, and then they attack that woman- Well, she just has to walk right into the building like nothing's happening. I did appreciate that they spent a lot more time with that sort of tension where she needed to act like nothing was wrong. And we just got to be in that with Nicole Kidman. It is a very tense scene. Uh Her walking around, seeing all this chaos and her having to stay stoic is well done. But it's one of those things where, I mean, like we talked about where you have to, the audience has to know that you're lying but the characters who are in the scene need to not know that you're lying. And how do you communicate that to the audience? There's a little bit of a disconnect there because she is obviously very distressed. Like her eyes are bloodshot. She's, they're darting from side to side. And we're all seeing that because the camera's right directly in her face. Exactly. But if you were far away, you wouldn't be able yeah, to maybe. tell. I have to tell my kids this all the time. <laughs> There's a big difference between acting in front of a camera that's right Uh, on your face. And acting in front of an audience that's far away. Yes. Uh Like, I try to tell my kids there's a reason that acting on stage might seem like you're overacting. Uh Uh-huh. That's because you are communicating this to people who are very far away from you. (sighs) Anyway, so she goes to the Belichick's home, which is where Craig and Wright 
are working together. But Mr. Belichick has gone missing. It's only Mrs. Belichick, right? But Yosef is covered in this stuff, and that's what they're really panicky about. Yes, well, it ends up being Mrs. Belichick that fucks them all over because her husband shows up and he's just like, we've always been together. You can't live without me. You know that. Are you really going to try? And she's just like, no. Yeah, no, I'm not. So she bre- she breaks very easily. It's supposed to be this sort of tragic, you know, the person you've been with for 50 years, like, okay, even if I succumb to this, at least I'm with you sort of thing. I mean, no, I'd kill you. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Yorish, not Yosef, Yorish also dies here. They He wakes up in the middle of his sleep, in the middle of this transformation, and he has a heart attack and dies. I'm sorry, I said that Wright was there. Wright's not there. Wright's already gotten out of the city. Yeah, he talks to Ben on the the phone, phone. and he's like, you guys haven't gotten out of D.C. yet? What the fuck are you doing? You need to get the hell out of there. They're sealing off that part of the city for quarantine, and that's when Nicole Kidman says, I've got it. Yeah. The guy pinned me down. I have it. As soon as I fall asleep, I'm done for. But I have to save my son. Uh And he's just like, all right, well, then I'm going to help you save your son. And this is when they discover the immunity thing. Yeah, because as they're walking through the streets, heading to her office or something like that, uh, I forget why, they see Veronica Cartwright getting carried away and she still hasn't changed. And they yes. end up having a conversation about why is it that, that they can't change her. Yeah, because she says, I've already been asleep. Don't you understand? Mm-hmm. When they have a conversation in the office, she reveals that, oh, you know what? She had this some sort of weird disease when she was little, you know, chicken pox or whatever. And he's like, oh, that's ADEM. And she's like, yes, no, I know what that is. Oliver had that. Maybe ADM, which fucks with the white matter in your brain prevents them from taking over that part of your brain. Yes. And so you're immune to it. Thank God for this very convenient immunity. Yes, that my son happens to have. We can save the world. Uh Uh-huh. Now, just like The Last of Us, we have a kid that's immune, and we gotta get that kid to safety. I wrote down again, oh my God, the CG. The CG is just really, really bad in this film. This is when he, she will go to the house again. And she will pretend like she's she slept, uh-huh. and it's taken over her. But when she tries to pretend, it's the kid, it's the kid's friend, yes, that figures it out. So the kid's friend, both of his parents died. These are parents we haven't met yet, by the way. Not the parent that we saw earlier. They didn't survive. Yeah. So he is now living with the baby daddy, the baby daddy's mommy. And Oliver, the baby. Your family is now my family. <laughs> yes, exactly. And But Oliver is in his room and not having dinner. And so she needs to eat with them and act like everything's okay. And she excuses herself to the bathroom and finds Oliver. And just leaves the door open as she hugs him and is all panicky and yes. thankful he's alive. And of course, this kid that went to look for them... who was suspicious, is right there in the doorway. And so she just grabs this kid and throws him across the room into the bed, knocking him out. Knocked the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) And they need to sneak out without her ex-husband's mom seeing them. And like a ghost, I'll be gone. I'll sing the ladies. I'll sing the ladies. (laughs) Yes, they're gone. So the father chases after them. 
And he's just like, I don't understand why you're fighting this so much. You're a psychiatrist. You give people pills to help them deal with life. Isn't that exactly oh, what we're that doing? Was so fucked up. <laughs> that was so fucked up. <laughs> And he's like, I like, I thought you'd be happy. We could have had, we had a chance to be a family again. Do you know why we didn't last in the beginning? Because you had a list of things that were important to you, and I was third on that list. Yeah, they're hiding now, and he's like locked them in this room that they're hiding in, and and he's calling out to them as he's looking for them. This stuff that yeah, I was third. Oliver was first. Your job was second. I was third. That's why we didn't last. But now. We can be perfectly aligned on our priorities. Yes. She ends up putting her son in like a thing to, to to keep him hidden. But of course, when she tries to escape, the ex gets her and is, I don't know what his plan is, force her to sleep. I don't know. Yeah. But the son ends up hitting the, the father. Yes. And then she ends up shooting him. Does she kill him here? No. Or she doesn't shoot him, but she does something. She hits him. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think, yeah, she also hits him. So they end up running to a pharmacy and we're back at the beginning yes. of the film. Uh -huh. And I love that they're just like, there's just blood everywhere and they just ignore it. It's great. There were people that were locked in the employee's only room and they were locked in there to force them to sleep. But now Kidman locks them in there to keep them out. To, yeah. To keep her and her son safe. And it's like, why don't you just leave? Why are they staying in there? They stay in there for a very long time to the point where she ends up passing out. But she does tell him all about how to use epinephrine. And yeah. if I do fall asleep, just give me a shot of this. And that immediately happens. Like, it's a it's a tease and then deliver, like, immediately. Yes, very quickly. No, it's adrenaline. It's not epi. She, she compares it to epinephrine. If you remember your friend had uh, diabetes or whatever and needed the EpiPen. This is just like that, except it goes right here in my heart. Um, and it's it's adrenaline is what it is. But when she wakes up, who's there? Daniel Craig is there. He's shown up. Yes. And it's very obvious that he has turned and she just won't do anything. At the, oh, at this point, she has the gun, yeah. another gun that she's gotten from the security guard who was inside the room asleep. And there's yes. this whole tense scene yes. that she has to get it without uh -huh. waking them up. She goes in, gets the gun, yeah, and then exits, yeah. So when she wakes up, Daniel Craig is there, okay? She's got the gun and Daniel Craig is there, but she's not willing to shoot Daniel Craig just yet. He lets all the people out. Well, he says to her, you don't ever have to be afraid again. We've provided you with a world without suffering. Just look, all of your wars have ended. Why are you Yeah, on the news, it's like every single conflict has been, like, it's worldwide now. Why aren't you happy about this? And she just watches him open up the door and let the people out. Like, I'm just yep. like, are you kidding me? Why don't you shoot him now? Well, so she now has fodder to shoot people she doesn't care about that she just shoots dead. And then he's like, well, remember, you're you have emotions. You care about things. You're not going to shoot me. And so she does, but just in the leg. Yeah. After she kills all the other people. <laughs> She shoots him in the leg like, you know, she's the Terminator. <laughs> and then we have a chase scene where she has a bunch of guys on her car and it oh, feels yeah. like a and, video game. And then it catches on fire. It's and bad. This it's is what really I was talking bad. about when by the end of the movie, it's just a fucking action movie. Because now Jeffrey Wright's got to come and save her 
with a helicopter and some military men. But again, it's because her son has the immunity and they need him to save the world. Exactly. But this is the moment where they confuse the phones. Like, it's her phone on the floor that's ringing, but it's Jeffrey Wright calling Daniel Craig. And then when she... She gets her son to give her the phone, and when she puts it up to her face, it's the flip phone now, which is not her phone that was ringing on the floor there. Like, so, like, even between shots, they so obviously something with the reshoots happened here, (laughs) and they rewrote some of it, and yeah. But anyway, they end up driving a flaming car into a garage, and then getting to the top of this building to get to the helipad where Jeffrey Wright's going to land. from the helicopter, they're able to find her car. Well, it is on fire. (laughs) Just go towards the fire. <laughs> and they are so proud of this shot where she hits like the, the you know, the clearance bar. Yes. Uh-huh. She hits that and they give you several shots of her hitting <laughs> that. Wow, are they proud of that shot? And when she ends up hitting one of the aliens, she gives this fierce yell when yes. she does oh, so. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. The CG is so awful all throughout this chase scene. But, yeah, so they get in the helicopter, and the next scene is, yay. Yay, it's it's in the future. They've administered the cure. The world is fine. And the number of infected is shrinking. And they're like, does that mean that it's over? Are things better now? He tells them that the aliens had no defense system, that the number of the infected are shrinking, and and they're like, great, does this mean the world is going to go back to the way it was? And he's like, well... Look at the newspapers. Better or worse, we're human again. Oh, he's giving this speech. Yeah. It's not in a press conference, which it absolutely would be. <laughs> it's it's the, the news reporters, like, hounding him as he's walking into his office. Yeah. And so, yes, now we get Nicole Kidman at home with her son. They're fine. And there's a gentleman at the breakfast table reading a newspaper. Oh, would you look at these stories? It's Daniel Craig. Since she didn't kill him, they could cure him. Yes. Yeah, it's very much... And now they're together. It's very much a, are we really better off? And we get this... As ourselves. We get this Yorish voiceover, the thing he said from the beginning of the movie, like, as if, hey, if you didn't understand the plot, here it is. This is what the movie's about. We're going to give you a fucking voiceover at the end explaining to you the point of the movie. 83 more deaths in Baghdad. Is it ever going to end? In the right situation, we are all capable of the most terrible crimes. To imagine a world where this was not so, where every crisis did not result in uh, new atrocities, where every newspaper is not full of war and violence. Well, this is to imagine a world where human beings cease to be human. Fuck! I could not believe it. Like, seriously, when I say this movie just ruins all the goodwill it builds up by the end, it really does. It just crashes towards the end. And then the movie's over. Yes. There's a couple of things. We didn't talk about the montage moments. There's two of those in there. The chick getting hit by the car looked pretty dang real. I thought that effect was really good. I lost it amongst all the other terrible CG effects I was forced to watch. Superman doesn't wear a mask, kid. Yeah. He dresses up as Superman for Halloween, but he has a mask? Yes, I noted that down. Famously, Superman does not wear a mask. (laughs) Like I said, Lily and Lana Wachowski 
uh, were brought in to do rewrites. James McTeague directed those new scenes. They spent about $10 million on that. Roger Ebert said that it was the fourth and the least of the movies made from Jack Finney's classic science fiction novel. Entertainment Weekly called it a soulless rehash. They say the movie isn't terrible. It's just low rent and reductive. The Wall Street Journal says, with all the shootouts, the screaming, the chases, collisions, and fireballs, there isn't much time for storytelling. It does feel like it just rushes through everything to get to these tense action scenes, you know? With that in mind, what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes, Kelsey? I'm sure it's very low. Maybe like a 30? 19%. There you go. The invasion is slickly made, but it lacks psychological insight and thrills. A Metacritic of 45 and a cinema score of C. Do you think that that is overrated or underrated? Maybe a little underrated. I'd say it's pretty underrated. I'd say it's a, it's a little harsh because there the are... The movie's not incompetent or yeah, anything. Yeah, and there are moments that are pretty good. It's just a shame that the CG is so awful... Sometimes the acting is just atrocious. Yeah. But there were things about it that I was surprisingly like, oh, I kind of liked that. That uh-huh. wasn't bad. So I'm going to give it a 45. I was going to give it a straight down the middle 50. I think it's just okay. I wouldn't recommend you watch it. Right. Especially when the 78 version is out there. Yes. But it's not terrible. Right. I think those reviews are pretty accurate, actually. Yeah. They're like, yeah, no, it's... I mean, I haven't seen Body Snatchers from the 90s, and I haven't seen the original. But, I mean, I can't imagine this is better than the original. I don't know about Body Snatchers. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe someday we'll watch those. Maybe. Uh, But speaking about things that we're going to watch, Kelsey... What are we watching next week? Next week is fun kid horror Halloween. Yeah, family friendly Halloween time. This is a thing that we're going to do, I think, every year is we'll put this family friendly week uh, within October. What are we watching this week, Kelsey? We're going to watch Hocus Pocus. Fuck yes. We watch this every year anyway. Yeah, we do. So we might as well do an episode about it. Literally, I think I've watched it every single Halloween since I was six years old. Right? Hocus Pocus and Paranorman. Paranorman, which we've only seen once. We only saw it once, but we both liked it. We really did. Uh, Yeah, we saw it at the, um, what's the Disney theater in Hollywood? I can't remember the name of it. But Disney owns a theater in Hollywood, and saw they have it there. Yeah, oh, that's right. They have it the had, art like, the exhibits sets. there. Why did yeah. we do that? I don't know. I don't know. It was like the middle of the day, and we—I think we were out in Hollywood, and because normally we go out there and we see um, Nightmare Before Christmas in 4D mm-hmm. when they did that like every year. I don't know if they're still doing that anymore. I think they stopped after they started doing it live. Oh, right, which we saw that when they did that the first year at the Hollywood Bowl, Mm -hmm. which was really cool. Yes. But anyway, we saw Paranorman at the same theater, and yeah, they had, like, the actual filming sets there that you could look at, all the models and everything, and it was very impressive. And I remember thinking, why isn't this movie bigger? Like, it didn't. we really enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't think it did very well. Coraline was more popular than this one, and I thought Coraline was very good, but I thought this one was very good, too. Yeah. But then again, I didn't understand why Monster House didn't do very well, either. Yeah. It's very bizarre that these movies don't do better than they do. I think it's because parents are way more 
hyper about what their kids see these days. You think they want to avoid the stuff that's in Paranorman? Yeah. Interesting. You don't even remember the story of Paranorman. I remember the basics. That's why I was like, listen, if we weren't going to do a family-friendly episode, we should pair Paranorman with the Frighteners, because it's about a dude who talks to ghosts. Like... Both movies are. And then Kelsey's like, there's like a witch and all this. And I'm like, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I just remember liking the movie. Um, so we'll see how it actually holds up on reinspection, I guess. So Hocus Pocus, which you know is a banger. And <laughs> Paranorman, which we remember being pretty dang good. Yeah. So hopefully this is going to be a great week for next week. And we hope you'll join us for it. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, Pod Cemetery. Follow us on Twitter, at Pod Cemetery. Subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. Write a written review, five stars, because that's the biggest help you can give us there. Sharing us with your friends is even more important than that. And even more important than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? This is the same way those rockets landed years ago, so those spacemen could mate with monkeys and create the human race. It's happening now! Addicted to the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Smoldings and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones And starring Donald Sutherland, Brooke, 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 Brooke Adams. And then their conversation is erupted by a man. You want to say interrupted? If you want to, you can play vitamin C right here. As we go on. There's a line in that song where she says, You better try right now because you might not get another chance. Definitely did that on purpose. I'll, I'll think about that. Okay. I don't know how well that will fit. <laughs> I'm okay with a happy ending. My, my husband, husband is, is not, not my husband. husband. No, I'd kill you. <laughs> <laughs>